Well, it has been a little while. <laughs> it's been like three weeks since I did a uh, live Q&A with you guys, and I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. Actually, as I was setting up all the lights and all the stuff that I do here at home, I uh, was just thinking, wow, it feels weird. Like, I haven't done this in a while. Um, so I'm going to give you a quick update before I answer the first question about correcting your husband and, like, how to think about that. And I have an interesting take that I, 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 I got from my wife on that topic that I think that you might... Uh, find insightful. But the, uh, the the thing I'd like to do is do a quick update. I usually do all my updates at the end of my videos. And I just want to let you guys know, if you ever don't see me uploading content, and you're like worried, like, did Mike die? Like, did something weird happen? Probably go to my most recent live stream um, or, or long form podcast and check the last few minutes because that's where I talk about, hey guys, for the next few weeks, this is happening. So that you can be informed because I, I definitely had a lot of people who were like wondering, hey, uh, what's what's going on, Mike? But I haven't. I I do announce things. It's just in that end of a video, not at the beginning like I'm doing today. I don't usually do any announcements before I get into the first question. Uh, but I'm happy to be with you guys today. My name is Pastor Mike Winger. If you if this is your first time watching, basically I try to help people answer tough questions about the Bible, and I want to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. That is the agenda. That is the goal. I haven't been here for a few weeks because last week I was at a conference. Uh, in on marriage, <clears throat> which relates to today's question. Today's question, actually, the first question is um, th- one question that didn't get answered at that conference because of time. We just had to move beyond it. And so I, I'm tackling it today. So this is the, the, the question that didn't get answered at the marriage conference. And I will put videos up eventually from that conference on my channel, probably within the next month and a half. All right. This question was basically, um, how do I correct my husband as a Christian? This, this, this I take to be a good-hearted Christian wife who's asking, how do I navigate this challenge of, of having, see, Christians have these high moral standards and values, that, which is very biblical and true that we should. And yet we're partnered with people who are, are like us falling short on a regular basis. The need for husbands and wives to be able to correct each other is actually pretty strong, but the danger of overcorrecting, of correcting too much, of correcting in in, uh, wrong ways is always present because my flesh comes out when when your flesh comes out, right? Flesh hooks flesh is the the phrase that I've heard. So I asked my wife this question because I think that my wife, here we go, my question number one back there, um, my wife is good at this. I think that she spent time learning and honing her ability to do this, to come to me with correction. She respects me as like the leader in our marriage and and not the only leader in our home because she's a leader too, but the one who has a higher role of leadership. And so that's her perspective on it. And um, I think that's biblical. So she says the following things. Here's my wife's advice to wives on this topic. She says, it's easy to correct everything. <clears throat> my wife notices everything. Like I'm, I'm not like that. Like I notice everything about certain subjects. But she, she tends to notice everything about the things I'm not noticing. And so so she says it's easy to correct everything and recommends that people, uh, you know, wives learn to not try to correct everything. If you do correct everything, it, it can tend to shut down your husband's ears uh, because he sees it as nagging. Even And it may be nagging or it might not be. But the point is that you're correcting so much that the sensitivity to you is not there. I almost think of it like currency. Um, when I'm... When I'm bringing someone correction, I, I want to know if in the relationship, if I have the currency, like the credit, the 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 place to to say this thing without 
destroying the relationship. Now, sometimes I'll still correct, even though I know I don't have that currency because it's what's needed. It's such an important issue. So you should do it anyways. But generally speaking, you, you want to be thinking like, am I correcting so much that it's not going to be heard? Um, <clears throat> are they uh, correcting themselves? This is a question my wife suggests you ask. Is your husband correcting himself? Is he like, hey, you know, I understand, you, you know, you know, that he understands what he did that was not correct, that was wrong, or the thing he said that was incorrect. You're driving back and he's obviously meditating on it, but you feel like you want to vent. Like, I just want to get it off my chest that I didn't like that you did that. That that thing would be unwise to do. I mean, this is not going to help your marriage. We're, we, I try to treat people with, with respect, <laughs> which sounds so pretentious to say that, but I mean, it applies to the issue of correction. When you look at someone and you go, I can tell you're correcting yourself. There's no need. To correct them. Uh, my wife also says another question to ask before you correct is, are you only correcting when you're frustrated? And that's a really important question to ask. This is good for parents as well to ask on a very different issue with raising their kids. Do you only discipline when you're upset? Um, it, that's you're, you're doing a bad job <laughs> if that's the case. Like, like that's a huge red flag. Like you don't notice it because you're so used to it, but that's a bad thing. But if you only correct a spouse when you're irritated, when you're frustrated, it's going to come out wrong. And so she says, wait till it passes. Wait till the frustration passes. You may still want to bring correction to that thing, but wait till you're not frustrated. Um, James tells us the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It tells us to be slow to speak, slow to wrath, and quick to listen. I think that that's the idea is just slow down. You may still bring godly correction, but that correction may come after having prayed, after having meditated, after having thought through it. And so <clears throat> my, my wife's advice as I, as I look at my, my poor handwriting um, is wait till that frustration passes, not because you will not correct at all, but because when you do, you'll have a better tone. You will have prayed over the issue, prayed for your husband and about the issue, and God kind of corrects you as you pray about those things. You'll have wisdom. And uh, my wife says that when she wants to when she waits to correct me, which she does correct me, when she waits to correct me, it, it always comes out, quote, so different. And that's just great wisdom to think, wow, just by waiting, I turned this into a moment of correcting that was godly instead of a moment of tension where it was mixed a mixed bag of, of help and hurt at the same time. Um, also learn your spouse. Uh, th this, this is something that she says takes time and she knows because <laughs> as she has learned me, she's learned like in this setting, bringing correction to me is going to be harder for me to receive. In this setting, it's going to be easier. Now, I want to be cautious here. My wife's giving all this great advice. It's totally on me to receive correction, and I should receive it even if it's nagging and in the wrong context because that's what humility and wisdom calls me to do as a husband. So I'm not saying, uh, husbands out there, if your wife corrects you poorly, you have a excuse to to cast it off ignore it and to just go up stubbornly about your stupid ways like that's not the case i am called to respond well whether the correction's godly or, or or a mixed bag i'm called to respond well but this is just advice that she has for wives so learn your spouse is this thing of of just you know it's all the it's the million things you learn in the first few years of marriage and then you slowly add to that over the next several years two years in three years in you're going to know a lot more about the the way you and your spouse interact and how um, bre breathing a certain way tends to cause certain things, how certain looks and tones of voice, like that was a big thing for me is realizing I have tones of voice that impact her in ways that I had no clue when I'm talking to her. This is just good wisdom for marriage. Um, 
So learn your spouse. That's just about love. It's about walking in compassion and love. And it takes time. Be patient. And um, she also says this. Here's a quote from from uh, from Mrs. Winger. She says, "Godly doesn't mean self righteous." So self-righteous is I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm correct on this issue and I'm going to correct him on it. But godly is not the same as that. Godly is a lot more than just being right on an issue. It's about the behavior you have on those things and the way you interact. And the final thing she said is to ask is who am I doing this in front of? Who am I bringing correction in front of? So that's, that's a huge thing. Now there's times to bring correction in front of anybody your, your, your husband gives bad directions to somebody, they're going to go the wrong way. So you, you have to bring correction right then and there or those people are going astray. Um, but if possible, it should be done in private. And this is, this is kind of a biblical principle that we could sort of uh, parallel in other more extreme situations. Jesus in Matthew 18, he says that if, if someone sins against you, take them aside, just the two of you by yourselves and bring correction. And then the, so the idea is that correction and fixing those kinds of issues is always better if done in private when that's possible. Now, sometimes that private correction has to turn into a public thing, especially if it's a major sin issue that the husband's got. And then, it, then you take more drastic measures because it's a more drastic issue. But Proverbs also echoes this. It's, it talks about how open rebuke, and throughout scripture, open rebuke or rebuking people in front of a group is tended, it, it's looked at as, you know, as a poor thing, as a negative thing. Not always wrong because the prophets do it. Jesus does it like with the Pharisees. He openly rebukes. But, but there is a general rule about personal, interpersonal relationships. Pull them aside. Bring that correction privately. So anyways, those are some things that uh, my wife shared. She probably could explain it better than I can. She's pretty good at that kind of stuff. But what I will say is that we're going to go to the next question. So let me, uh, oh, I didn't bring up my, my, uh, my notes or not my notes, rather my, um, messenger for this just a second so I can get your guys questions. Thanks for joining. This is the live stream for, for the Friday Q and a, we do this just about every Friday, not every, every Friday, but most of them. And today I'm drinking a cup of coffee with some, uh, turbinado sugar in it. Normally, I don't do sugar, but today, turbinado. Did I pronounce that right? Maybe. All right, um, let's go to question number two. This is from James Raphael, who says, besides simply the Bible says so and Bible figures certifying them, how do we trust revelations that what Moses wrote of others' lives slash words, all of Genesis, are things that those people actually said or said slash happened. Okay, there's a lot of slashes there. I'm going to summarize this question to the best of my ability. There we go. Forgot to move the counter. Question number two. I'm, I'm a little rusty. Three weeks. So, James, your question seems to be, um, other than saying, hey, Mike, uh, or, you know, hey, hey, James, the Bible tells me that these things really happened, therefore they happened. Other than that, how do I prove that the stuff that occurred in, that is recorded in Genesis really happened? Um, specifically, Moses, and so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to those. Um, well, let, let me say um, this is the first thing we have to do is make this issue more complicated than the Bible tells me so or other evidence. If these are the two, if this is the sort of, uh, I'm going to use this phrase, I don't usually use this phrase, but in order to penetrate the thinking of somebody who won't hear me, if this is your binary thinking, right, that there is just the Bible tells me so or quote other evidence then I think you need to break that picture to look at how there's more variety here. 
Um, so whereas in many areas of life, it is binary, but, but not here. So for instance, when I say the Bible tells me so, I, do I mean I have zero reason to trust what the Bible says? And I'm just taking it at its word. It just says it, so I believe it. And if that's what you think Bible tells me so, which is how most people in the secular community think that word, that, that phrase functions, then you're you're mistaken. Okay, this is not what I would suggest. So why would I why would I believe the Bible? Well, I believe the Bible because it has, let me give you a few specific reasons. I'll just summarize these, but I'll recommend you guys. In fact, uh, Mods or Sarah, could someone put in the live chat my evidence for the Bible series? It's over 20 videos providing evidence for why you should believe what the Bible says, right? Extra biblical evidence, internal evidence, and external. Um, <clears throat> let's put that in there, and I'll put it down in the video description as well, and you guys are welcome to check it out. I, I would recommend it. I think it's uh, it's, a, it's great. It's going to make you see that the Bible tells me so is not the jokey phrase that it is to <laughs> skeptics online. Um, but here's a few specific points. Summary. Prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. So within the text of scripture, we have claims about this being um, a unified message from God. And how would you confirm? How would you prove that God has inspired the text of scripture? Well, it's difficult because there might be some kind of scientific insights. There might be some historical accuracies. But it's, it's not that hard to explain those based on human resources. Um, you know, it is true that the Old Testament talks about like the water cycle. How the water goes from, you know, goes up into the clouds, down into the ocean, back up into the clouds, which was not the, the thinking of the time, to my knowledge, from the research I've done on the topic. It, there's, there's other issues, too, where the Bible seems to be like ahead of its time. But, you know, that's only really soft evidence. Here's stronger evidence. What if the Bible predicts the future and the things that it predicts, we can demonstrate they were, A, written ahead of time. B, they're specific enough to not be a coincidence. And C, they weren't fulfilled by the people who wrote them or as an attempt to fulfill the prophecies. So, so this is why, like, the Bible, for instance, has prophecies about um, the destruction of Tyre. And we, we have, like, statements about what a, a non-Israelite king, a non-Jewish king's going to do to a non-Jewish nation. So these are things the Jews have no power over. You know, they're written ahead of time and then they are fulfilled in detail. But one of the greatest evidences of prophecies are, are about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled many prophecies. Now, I, I, I hesitate to say things that some people say. Jesus fulfilled 500 prophecies. Well, what do you, you know, what do you, yeah, I'm not going to make that giant claim. He fulfilled many very specific prophecies. And when you add these together, you, you see this amazing reason to say, look, the Old Testament is showing evidence that it's inspired by God. And therefore, God is trustworthy, so we should believe it. That means I don't have to confirm every historical event in the book of Genesis in order for me to trust the book of Genesis because I'm not just, that. that's actually a position of I will never believe the Bible. I will only believe unbiblical or extra-biblical sources. So when the Bible says there was an exodus, the, the children of Israel left Egypt, um, I'm only going to believe that if, if, if archaeology and all this other stuff supports it. Maybe if there's an ancient document found that says that they left Egypt. And I'm like, you mean like the Bible, an ancient document that says they left? You know, that if it wasn't the Bible, if it wasn't the supernatural claim book, people would probably take it more seriously in many cases. Um, but instead, 
I'm going to say, hey, but the Bible has fulfilled prophecy. Jesus himself stands at the center of it, both with him fulfilling prophecy, as well as him calling it scripture, as well as him rising from the dead and the evidence for the resurrection comes in there. So I have prophecy, Jesus's death and resurrection, and the support for that. And this all says that I should be trusting and believing the Old Testament. Now, another question you have to ask on top of this, James, this is a current modern debate that's going on. And it, there's a debate that's unfaithful to scripture on this topic, but there's a debate that's faithful to scripture. And here's the debate. Were all the statements in, say, this passage, say Genesis 1 uh, through 11, intended to be straightforward historical accounting? Now, don't get me wrong. This is this is the, the, the unbiblical, you know, un- Christian perspective on this is to say, oh, so you're saying Genesis 1 through 11 has errors. And of course, I'm not saying this because I don't take a position on this topic, but there's a better way to ask it, right? a more faithful way. Was it intended when written to be taken as a straightforward historical account? And that's a genre analysis of Genesis 1 through 11, something I'm still not sure. But the thing is, whatever wherever that genre analysis leads me, I believe that conclusion because I have so many reasons to trust that God inspired the scriptures. I hope that helps. Um, if now a skeptic listening to me responds by going, so it's for the Bible tells me so, um, it, it, with, with all the compassion in my heart, you, you're being a fool. Like you're actually blinding yourself to the very answer you just heard. I've given you something so much better and I hope you'll consider it thoughtfully and not just immediately meme mock the people you don't agree with. All right, let's go to question number three. This is um, from uh, Anita No, who says, if I was baptized as a teen and messed up a bunch, even not going to church as I should, should I get rebaptized after coming to my senses and trying to live for God again? Um, the question I have for you, Anita, is were you... This is this is how I would make this decision if it was me in my life. Were you mentally aware and serious about the commitment to follow Jesus, about what it meant when you got baptized initially? And if the answer is no, I really didn't understand. I did it because of maybe peer pressure. Um, I thought I was supposed to, but I didn't really know what it meant to trust in Christ. I didn't understand who Jesus was and what the gospel was. Then you definitely should, I, I would recommend go get baptized <laughs> because it's believer's baptism. That's the thing that I hold to, and that's the thing I'd suggest you do. Um, if, on the other hand, you're like, no, I, I was absolutely 100% sincere, and I was aware of the basic doctrines of Christianity and the beliefs about Jesus that are central there in the baptism, that I'm identifying with him in his death and in his resurrection, that I'm believing he died for my sins and he rose from the dead, and I'm committing to follow him. If that was sincere, you don't need to get re-baptized to, like, to, what, to what end. Baptism is a, is a is a commitment of faith, and if that was a genuine commitment, whatever happened in the in the midterm in the meantime, you just need to recommit your life to Christ. You don't need to go and get baptized because I don't believe that baptism is going to impart to you some new um, additional thing that you've lost because of the the things you've done. I, I just don't think so. And I don't think that that's biblical. So there are actually no biblical examples of people getting rebaptized. Exactly, but there's almost an example of it, right? Where the uh, in the book of Acts, um, if I remember correctly, Paul goes to a group of Christians and he asks them, like, um, "Hey, you know, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed and all this?" They were baptized in the baptism of John, 
John, not Jesus, John, but they didn't really know that much about Jesus. Now, John talked about how the Messiah was coming. So they understood that there was a Messiah coming. Maybe they even understood that that was going to be Jesus, but they didn't really understand Jesus very well. So they actually get rebaptized. But that fits kind of my theory, I think, that if there's insufficient knowledge and faith in Christ, then a rebaptism is more legit. So now in the early church, here's a weird church history thing that you guys might want to know. In the, I, I say early church, I don't mean first century. I mean, after that, um, after all the apostles had died, after all the New Testament had been written, um, even around the time of Constantine, this was going on where people were teaching in the, in the, I think it's the third and fourth centuries, maybe the third century is the first time it shows up. I don't know. Maybe it shows up in the second century. Um, but they were teaching that, uh, baptism was actually a removal of, uh, of a certain number of sins. But if you committed a really serious sin after baptism, that you would lose your salvation. And I think that this was a mistake. But what's interesting about this is this is what caused people to delay baptism until like they were on their deathbed because they thought that baptism was this moment where something was happening and you needed to be, you needed to preserve that thing or else you would lose your salvation. And then you can only be baptized once was their view. So this is actually why Constantine, the emperor of Rome, even though he became Christian, we don't know his heart, but at least publicly he became Christian. He waited until way later in life to get baptized. This wasn't because he was a, he was faking things. It was because of this weird belief about baptism, doing something that is different than what scripture says. All that to say, I do have a video on baptism, a couple of them. If you just Google my name or maybe Ahmad will put my some one of my baptism videos in there about whether baptism saves or not. I even have a debate on the topic, a four-hour debate for those of you who just want to binge on that. I will link all that in the video description down below. All right, let's go to question number four. This is from Shelly Scholes, who says, how do you handle Christians who don't believe that your divorce was biblical? Um, he was a narcissist slash sociopath who convinced them before he died that I was the problem and my children won't speak to me. Um, Shelly, you um, are asking a very, very big question because at first I'm thinking, uh, let me let me start by this. I'm going to assume that your divorce was biblical, Shelly. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that it was. That's how my answer is gonna go here. Um, I don't know much about your situation. You do. I don't. I just read one sentence. <laughs> so, but let's assume that that's the case. When you first asked the question, I was thinking that you're referring to like say, uh, random people at, in church or random people who you meet, and you tell them, "Yeah, I'm divorced," and they and they and they cast sidelong glances at you. Now, I've talked to. Uh, I can even think of a gentleman not too long ago I talked to who had been divorced because his wife. Um, cheated on him and then left him and he re and he really did to the best of my knowledge he really did everything he could to reconcile handled in a very godly way but they're divorced now and he was talking about how there's like a stigma you know and he'll tell people or they'll find out about it and it changes the changes the atmosphere changes the relationship and so it's hard um what i would encourage you to do is rely on the people who know you the best if it's strangers and random people who are viewing you that way come up with a, a one short, simple statement that you could say if you need to figure out how you'll word it. You know, maybe you say, you say, um, yeah, I don't really want to get into the details, but yeah, it was a challenging, hard time. And I think that I did, I did what, what was biblical and then just move on. <clears throat> um, and don't worry about what people think about you. But if you're right, that he, he was a narcissistic sociopath who convinced your own kids not to speak to you anymore then there's some need 
for family reconciliation with your own family and your own kids. And so I'm going to ask you to consider going and getting counseling, Christian counseling. Like sit down with a godly counselor. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It could be someone who's a trained Christian counselor. You sit down with them, meet with them, and talk with them through the issues. Be super open to them correcting you if there's any areas where you need correction. And if that bothers you, hear me. If you're like, oh, I, I, I can't have that, then that's actually a huge obstacle to your to your reconciliation with your family. Um, doesn't mean everything's your fault. No. But we, whenever reconciliation comes, we have to be able to look at ourselves and do hard work, um, even if we weren't a primary cause of whatever has gone on. So I, I just encourage you to do that. Shelly, God bless you and help you have peace and patience and wisdom and be led in true righteousness and holiness and compassion. I'm so sorry about that situation. Number five, this is from Richards98, who says, do you have any advice or mistakes to avoid for a young marriage? Uh, yeah. <laughs> young marriage. Okay, young marriage. One is this. Um, chances are, let's say you're a young married person, you're listening. Chances are, it's not 100% true, but chances are that marriage in at least some ways, maybe a lot of ways, is a lot harder than you thought it would be. It's probably also better than you thought it would be. It's probably both. Um, but for that part that's harder than you thought it would be, I would encourage you that as you go through future years, if you behave godly, that will get easier, most likely. Like, there's a really good chance it'll get a lot easier. You can't control the other person, um, but there's a good chance. Um, one of the things that we did was we established a few rules um, in our in our marriage. Off the top of my head, I can remember some of them, and I would share them with you guys to consider. One is... Uh, Never raise your voice <clears throat> unless it's because the person can't hear you, <laughs> like like they're far away. So never raise your voice, no yelling. Uh, the moment that one of us starts to raise their voice, because we've talked about that as a rule, the other person can say, you're raising your voice, because often you're not aware you're doing it. And this has been super good in my marriage, because uh, growing up, there was, uh, in my in my household, there was so much screaming and yelling that I was... I had seen a lot of cycles of negativity in marriage, and I was af I wanted to cut those things off before they started. I was afraid of them, um, so I would say never never raise your voice. Stay calm. Just getting louder makes you more upset, right? This is this is it starts this snowball effect, and then it affects the other person, and pretty soon you're just having this battle, and then you reconcile later, and you feel like oh it's normal. It's normal to call each other names. Well, that's another rule. Don't ever call each other names except honey and sweetheart and. Pepita or whatever whatever name you want to call each other. Um, don't call each other bad names, though. Like, ever. Um, this is just a good, basic interpersonal relationship skills. You, you want to treat your spouse the best of everybody. So you don't call random people names, I hope, unless you're just a jerk, you know? Like, and so the same rule is true of marriage. Don't ever use the name-calling thing. Um, avoid generalizing when you're upset. When you're upset and you say, well, you always do X, you always do Y, you never do A, those statements are usually not true. So what's happening is in the midst of a tense moment, I'm actually being dishonest about you. And then your guard goes up and the porcupine quills come out and it just snowballs to other things. We also have tendencies that we didn't even know about as when, we're, when we first get married. This is just, I'm just speaking from practical like life experience um, here. Uh, this stuff's biblical. Everything I've shared is biblical. You, uh, you, you know, love is not rude. It, it's, it's, it doesn't. So, it wouldn't call names. It wouldn't be yelling at people like that. But, um, 
but this one is something that just I noticed from personal experience. When I got married, I had tendencies I'd never known that were unhealthy on in how I would deal with conflict in the home. So things I didn't expect. For some reason, when I first got married, if we had a disagreement and it was like tense, you know, my 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 tendency, I won't talk about any, my wife here because that would be unkind, but my tendency was to want to just get out of Dodge. Like I just wanted to get in the car and go drive away. And I wanted it so bad. It was weird how much I just wanted to get in the car and drive away. I think maybe it was like, I can't control the situation. It's not going the way I want. But if I just vacate it, like I'm not going to yell, I'm not going to call names. But if I just get out of here, then then I'm, I don't know. I'm in control. But here's what I did was I, I, I imagined one day having kids who know about me. When dad gets upset with mom, he gets in the car and drives away like a little child, like a, like a little brat. And then remembering when they're in their 20s and 30s back to how dad would get all stormy and upset and then, and then drive away like he can't be mature and deal with issues as, a, as like an adult. And that awareness that I would feed into like a pattern of behavior that would teleport for years into the future, it kept me from doing it. So no matter how much I felt like it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wait a little bit, calm down, and then talk about it. And um, it wasn't easy at all. But what's interesting is after, I don't know, a year, two years, I no longer had the desire. After refusing to just drive off and, and react in the flesh, I no longer had the urge to do it. It was the weirdest thing. So what I'm saying is be super strict about how godly you behave when you're not agreeing with each other because those will become, even though it's super hard at first, they'll become patterns of behavior that get into your marriage and bless you for the next 50 years. And if you're ungodly and you call names and you pout and you give the silent treatment and you drive down the street because you're angry and you yell, there'll be patterns of ungodly behavior that will haunt you for the next 50 years and you'll do it in front of your kids. And here's the sad part. They'll be much more likely to do it to their spouse because they were trained to do it without even realizing it. So there's a few things for, for young married people. Um, I'd, I'd also just suggest your spouse, you get married, last thing I'll say, and you think of them as your source of happiness. They're not. Um, and if you, t if you think of them as your source of happiness, you're very likely to be bitter at them when they're not. They're not your source of happiness. They're a stewardship to honor Christ and to glorify God, to demonstrate his love and grace that he's given us by the way that you treat them. That's what they are. They're not there for your personal happiness. Imagine thinking that someone else exists for your own personal happiness. This will make you a bitter and mean person. But Christianity would say it's the opposite. I want to be existing first for the pleasure of God and second, I want to bring joy to my spouse, but they can't look at me and expect me to just be their joy source either. So it's, it's like this kind of one-sided thing. I give, but I, I, I give more than I try to take. That's how marriage works. Not 50-50. I give 100%, but I don't expect 100%. She gives 100%, doesn't expect 100% back. That's grace. All right, number six, <clears throat> B Loves Jesus says, there are, there are sins listed in 1 Corinthians 6 that seem to send people to hell. I struggle often with gluttony or anger. I repent but fall back into it often. What's the difference? I was thinking about this verse, this passage recently as we were talking about it. Uh, it, it was at a conference I did in February, which 
I don't do very many conferences, y'all, just so you know, because <laughs> it takes me away from the regular content I make. But um, look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm thinking <clears throat> this is the verse. Uh, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither, and there's a list, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, often people read this passage and they focus on homosexuals or sodomites. Uh, this is uh, New King James Version. The ESV has it this way, which I think is interesting. Um, men who practice homosexuality. What Just just side note, uh, what Paul does here is he takes two different words. Uh, I think it's arsenokoitos and... Uh, is it Malakoy? I feel like I'm pronouncing that one wrong. Um, and he takes these two different words uh, that refer to active and passive participants of same-sex sexual behaviors. Um, there's a huge debate on this issue. Is that really what he means? It's really what he means. Like, there shouldn't be a debate on this. There's a debate on it because people don't like it, in my opinion. <laughs> but that's not the focus of the passage. It, it is definitely included. What people tend to do is they go, well, yeah, you're going to talk about this, but what about... um. What about adulterers? What about thieves? What about people that are greedy? Aren't you going to say that they're also not going to inherit the kingdom? And the way Christians often respond to this is they back off of all these things. Oh, well, I don't want to say that like someone who's a drunkard, who's an alcoholic, won't inherit the kingdom. So they back off the whole list. But that's the opposite of Paul's point. When, when, when we say, here's how the conversation usually goes. Well, it says that, you know, practicing homosexuality, you won't inherit the kingdom. Yeah, but are you going to say that about the drunkards? Of all the drinkers in your church who drink too much? Our answer has to be yes. Not no. Yes. And the greedy. And the revilers. Revi What's a reviler? Those are people who just have a general attitude of reviling others. This is like social media. It, 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 it gives you the opportunity to stir this up and nurture a reviling attitude. right? Nor swindlers. Right? Not people who use deceptive business practices as part of their regular stuff. Like some car salesman, that's you. right? Like You're a swindler. Um, and they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Like what am I supposed to say? Now, here, I will offer one thing. Here's what I say. I've been thinking about this recently. I know this passage scares people. It's supposed to, but I do think we're supposed to have some nuance with it. So here's the nuance I'm going to add without backing off the main point at all because I, I desperately want to only... Say what scripture says and not go beyond it. So, um, Paul in context, he's aware that there are Christians who are behaving in ungodly ways in Corinth. He's asking them in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a whole chapter about it. He's asking them to excommunicate or remove them from the fellowship. One of the reasons for this, right? One of the reasons for this is... Um, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let me tie it into 1 Corinthians 5. Guys, they shouldn't be part of your fellowship because they will not be, people who do these things will not be part of the eternal fellowship. Does that mean then, here's the question, here's the hard part. Does that mean that people who are sexually immoral yet call themselves Christian, people who are greedy, covetous, they're greedy, they call themselves Christian, they're thieves, they steal, but they call themselves Christian. And it's a it's obviously a regular practice, okay? This is not something they did once, something they did every once in a great while, and then they repent. This is a regular practice. Does that mean that they are not going to be saved? I don't 
I don't think it means that, but it doesn't not mean that. It, it, it's a gray area, and I think it's supposed to be a gray area. Let me try to explain it away. I hope brings more clarity than confusion. When Paul looks at the world, he sees people living ungodly lifestyles. When he looks at the church, Christians, he sees generally people living godly lifestyles. When he looks into the church, I knocked my glasses off. <laughs> That's from not sleeping enough. When he looks into the church and he sees Christians, called Christians, who were living ungodly lifestyles, he poses them a question, not a conclusion. Hey, don't you guys know people who do this kind of stuff aren't going to inherit God's kingdom? And it's meant to leave tension with them. You Christian who are living, not just you occasionally fall, you are living a regular lifestyle where you're committed to these sins. It should at least cause you to question, why do I look like the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God? I don't think Paul's trying to draw a conclusion. And here's the nuance. I don't think he's trying to draw a conclusion about whether they're saved or not. He's trying to present to them the problem that should cause them to not have a conclusion of their own. I Here's the, here's the thing we should avoid. I'm going to live an active, sinful lifestyle, but I'm still a Christian, so it's okay. No, you're not. You are doing the things that match the people who don't inherit the kingdom. And so this should cause a certain fear in you that should lead you to repentance. I think that that's the idea. There's more that can be said on that passage. Some, some will say, I'll throw this out. Some will say, verse 11 says, such were some of you. And then, he, so they take this in verse 11 as Paul affirming, but don't worry, um, all of the, all of the Corinthians, they are not these things. So Paul doesn't mean any of them are in this category of not inheriting the kingdom. I don't think we can say that, um, to be honest and fair with it, such were some of you refers to some of you. <laughs> He doesn't say all of them. And so it, it's, again, we're back to a bit of mud, right? When, when people, here's, here's my summary. When people say they're a Christian and then their lives look like they're a Christian, you can be strongly confident they're a Christian. When they say they're not a Christian, you can also be confident they're not a Christian. But what about this muddy part? When they say they're a Christian, but their lives don't look Christian. I'm not saying I'm certain they're unsaved. I'm saying you cannot be certain they are saved because they don't look like it. It doesn't look like their faith is real. It's what James talks about. Like, do you really, is this real faith or is this just dead faith? Because real faith leads to actions. I hope that that helps. I know that it doesn't resolve people's angst about unrepentant. And I'm not talking about everybody sins, every Christian sins. We fail, we fall short. I'm talking about lifestyle sins, lifestyle of uh, this is just my whole life, it's consumed me. Um, it doesn't give them comfort, but I don't think it's supposed to. Number seven, Squidbeard has a question. Hi, Pastor Mike. Verses in Proverbs seem like unrelated thoughts. Their vague quality makes it hard to know how to interpret them correctly. How do you determine the context of these verses? Um, well, it takes wisdom. And so it's interesting how um, Proverbs describes itself as wisdom. And it says the, the wise will increase in understanding. Um, so I think I think that it's smart of us to understand um, with the wisdom of Proverbs takes work. And there isn't a single rule you do across the book of Proverbs. But there are some sections. Let me just add some clarity here. Proverbs, especially the first several chapters, like, I don't know, six chapters, nine chapters of Proverbs, 
has lots of big sections, but you can tell it by reading it. Um, the later sections of Proverbs, after that, when you get into the, the individual sayings, sometimes they're connected and sometimes they're not. I'll give you one example of a connected, um, if I can find it. Um, it's one that I particularly like. Maybe I can search for it this way. Um, this example of proverb you might not think is connected, but it is. I'm trying to remember what chapter it is. Oh, I know what I should search. Um, voila. Through the brilliant abilities of a search engine... Okay, here's a section of Proverbs 26. A large section, it's like 12 verses that are all connected. So I'm just going to read straight through it with a tiny few comments here and there. And you can see why I would say this is connected, but much of it's not. Okay, uh, much of the book is not. Uh, a snow, as snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Um, you, it doesn't snow in summer. It's not right. It shouldn't snow in summer. Plus, it's, harm, it's harmful, right, to the crops. Rain in harvest is also harmful to the crops. And it's out of season so it's not good to give honor to fools. Uh, a lot of our social media does this. We give honor to fools all the time. We keep giving them stages. Uh, a lot of popular rappers are like this. Um, so verse two, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow. So a curse without cause shall not alight. Um, it's not going to work. It's not going to land, so to speak. Um, a whip for the horse and a bridle for the donkey and a rod for the fool's back. Now, have you noticed not as much in verse two, but definitely... In verse 1, there's an issue of a fool. In verse 3, a whip for the horse. The horse is, is a dumb animal. It requires a whip. A bridle for the donkey. It has to be controlled with bridle. It's not smart enough to follow commands. And a rod for the fool's back because he won't listen, so he ends up suffering. That's the point. Again, fool is the topic. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Right? You, you can become a fool when you respond to fools. I've done this. <laughs> uh, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in your own eyes. I've actually heard skeptics say, well, see, the Bible's got contradictions. And I'm like, you got to like try to be smart when you read the Bible. <laughs> I don't mean to offend, but come on, man. Um, yeah, the point here is that whether you answer the fool or not, it's going to be trouble. If you don't answer him, he just goes off thinking, see, you didn't answer. I've had this happen on Twitter. Someone posts a, a response to me and then someone else tweets, Mike Winger went silent and he didn't respond. And I'm just like, okay. I mean, this is the point. If you don't answer, they'll just be like, see, I'm right. If you do answer, you can end up becoming a fool as well. The point here is that answering people who are behaving foolishly is dangerous for you and you should do it very carefully. But again, fool is the focus. He who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Because um, whenever someone's relaying your information about you to others, you need them to have wisdom lest they misrepresent you and cause problems between you and the person, right? So don't send a message by the hand of a fool. Like the legs of a lame, the lame that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Fools don't even understand how to use wisdom. They even quote proverbs wrong. Like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. <laughs> Um, it's dangerous. Uh, you're 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 it, you're going to cause harm. It's like a weapon you've given them. 
Um, like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You know, you see how they're all connected. The, the great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. Um, this is metaphorically, I think, speaking of the fools going to, going to get judgment. God will deal with them. Verse 11, as a dog returns to his own vomit, right? The dog, it didn't sit right, so it threw it up, but then the dog eats it again. Kind of a dumb practice. So a fool repeats his folly. You sinned, you did something foolish, it, re it messed up your life, you're going to go do it again. Here's verse 12, where it, where it hits its final landing point. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Verses 1 through 11, here's my quick summary. Here, verses 1 through 11 give you this, being a fool is the worst thing. You don't want to be a fool. Don't be a fool. Being a fool is so bad. And there's people going, good thing I'm not a fool. They're reading verses 1 through 11. Good thing I'm wise. Good thing I walk with wisdom and I understand the Proverbs and I know, oh yeah, I'm not a fool. I'm a wise man. Verse 12 hits you between the eyes and says, are you wise in your own eyes? As bad as it is to be a fool, that fool has more hope than you. Because the worst kinds of kind of folly is self-righteousness, self-wisdom, self-overestimation. Um, because it, it's pride. Pride is worse even than being a fool. And being a fool is pretty bad, by the way. So do you see how it's connected? How it was like verses 1 through 11 are a wind-up? And then verse 12 is like a punch. But you, you get there by seeing there's a connected section. I would recommend if you're reading Proverbs not to try to make things connected that aren't. Just observe and see if there's a consistent theme in a section. Then read it that way. And if you don't notice a consistent theme, then read it by itself. And that's totally fine. There's a, um, another example here. I love Proverbs. The lazy man says there's a lion in the road and a fierce lion is in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Here's a section on lazy men, but it also connects to the previous section on folly. Because being wise in your own eyes is, is, is worse than just general foolishness. And a lazy man, he's wise in his own eyes. Have you ever wondered at the idea that laziness, the cause of laziness, a root issue with those who are lazy is pride? Think about that for a while. There's the book of Proverbs for you, giving you wisdom. I, I think Proverbs is awesome. Read it slowly, read it thoughtfully, and it may take you 30 years to feel like you've wrapped your head around most of it, and that's okay. All right, let's go to the next question, um, number eight, or wait, yeah, number eight. This is from Avery Bunton, who says, should Christians work for business that include agenda-promoting sin, like Disney? It has a diverse product, but included is sinful ideas. How... Can we not be unequally yoked in non-marital situations? I'm actually going to tackle. So we're, um, that scripture not being unequally yoked, it's in 2 Corinthians. And actually, I'm kind of been rethinking my understanding of that verse. And I don't think I want to comment on it just yet. Um, what I would say is, if you have assumptions about the phrase, read it in context carefully. Um, I'm not sure that I've always understood it correctly. I was thinking about this recently. So let me marinate on that for a while though. But the the idea of should Christians work for businesses that have agendas that promote sin, um, I think that um, uh, there's wisdom in working for companies that do things you believe in, but I don't think it's necessary. And here I want to say it's not like an on-off switch. It's more like a sliding scale. If I'm working for, say, a company 
that produces pornographic videos, I should quit. But if I'm working for a company that produces mostly good and okay content that's peppered with bad stuff, and then they take some of the proceeds they make and they use it to support bad political agendas, that's, I'm not saying it's totally okay. I'm just saying it's not where everything the company's doing is expressly ungodly. And so it's, it seems like a sliding scale. Um, sliding scales can be dangerous because I'm not implying that um, that it's it's no biggie or something like that. But I will, I will say this. Um, for me, where I would draw the line for sure is this. If my work in the company is directly causing wickedness, then I can't do that work because my, my labor is causing wickedness. Now, if the proceeds or the profits coming from my labor are, are, are being used for bad things, some of them, that is not on me in the sense that I am not in control. So imagine you work for a mechanic and you're working on fixing cars, but you know the boss who owns the shop does all kinds of ungodly things. He uses the money from the mechanic shop. He's saving because he's going to uh, open up a strip club which he will ironically call a gentleman's club uh, as if any gentleman would ever go into a club to watch uh, women dance for them who aren't their wives. <laughs> um, <laughs> gentleman's club. That's the world. Um, so are you responsible? Because you're, you're helping produce a product that gets money that he's going to use to do something very ungodly. And I think the answer is no. Um, you're responsible for the work you produce you're responsible for what you do with the money that comes from that. He's responsible for what he does with the money that comes from that. With Disney, it's it's a little more gray. You might be working on a on a on a movie that you know is pushing these really bad agendas, as they have said they want to push these just just ungodly and immoral and um, untrue agendas. That you might be working on a product, a movie, and you may have to say, you know what, my my work is directly impacting this this stuff in a way that I can't be part of it. But I'm going to leave that to individuals. I'm not going to tell like everybody who, let's say that you work in a store at Disney and you're just, you're like scanning people's Buzz Lightyear doll. And then someone's telling you, you have to quit your job. And you're like, well, uh, I don't really feel like I'm part of that. So I'm, I'm going to leave that up to individual consciences. There's my muddled answer for you. <laughs> All right, number nine. Um, oh, well, let me back up real quick, real quick on this and just say, um, in the, in the early church, we don't have a lot of data about the types of jobs they had. And we don't, they don't exactly have the employer-employee type relationships we have. Um, and so it's difficult to find a parallel to the New Testament for your question. So what I'm doing is I'm just trying to answer from a more general perspective of when my actions and my labor directly cause, through, through my actions, ungodliness, I have to stop. When my actions and my labor cause profits that someone else uses for ungodly things, that is not the same. And I think that's just a separation of responsibility. I hope that helps, man. Sir Ref, uh, Reformador, Sir Reformador says, should we command or ask God for someone to be healed? Acts 3.6. Do we have the very same authority of the apostles to perform miracles? Mark 16 verses 17 and 18. Let's look at those verses. Acts 3.6. So your first question is like, should I ask or command? Which one is it? 
for, um, or should I command someone to be healed or ask God for someone to be healed? You're not asking if you should command God, but, um, then Peter said, silver and gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This isn't, Peter does not say, Hey, if God is willing, I hope this happens. Although that is an appropriate prayer, but why is it that he can command it here? He does command it. And there's other times where there's just requests that go out, right? Like, like when Paul says in, uh, that he three times, I pleaded with the Lord. Let me read it to you. Um, This is where Paul has his thorn in the flesh. And notice how it's very different than the Acts passage. He says here, three times, uh, concerning uh, this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. That's not a, that's not a command. He pleaded with God. Why is it that, that now, are we going to say Peter was more spiritual than Paul here? Or he understood the rules of spiritual healing, which I, I, I can't help but roll my eyes when I hear people online talk about the rules of spiritual healing, which always sound like they're making things up. I want biblical rules, man, not rules that use biblical words, but aren't taught in scripture. <laughs> um, what I'm going to say, since this is going to be my shorter answer, not the long one, there's examples of both in scripture. So we need a theology that fits both. There's times where you can simply proclaim someone's going to be healed. And there's times where you plead, Lord, please heal. And sometimes he even says no. We need all of that. If we don't have a theology of healing that involves saying, be healed in Jesus' name with, with, with that full faith and a sense of authority to heal. And also, other times, not doing that. Other times saying, Lord, please, your will be done. I don't know. What makes the difference? I think um, what makes the difference, then I'll go to the Mark passage briefly. I think what makes the difference is faith. Uh, my belief on this issue is that when Peter was, he, was, was commanding for that man to be healed in Jesus' name, that that was something God was giving him a, an awareness. Like, I'm going to heal this man. And so Peter trusted that and he, in faith, said, be healed. But Paul didn't have a word from the Lord an awareness that God was going to get rid of this infirmity for him, which is why he pleaded, Lord, I don't know, but I plead that you would. I think that when we, when we just know that God is going to heal some of it because God is revealing it to us, we can pray with strong faith, but we don't have to pretend we know. This is so important. We don't pretend we know what we don't know and call that faith. Faith is a response to God. It's not something I stir up within myself apart from what God has revealed. This is why Jesus would just proclaim you're healed, 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 and yet he marches forward to the cross. It's different. He knows this is part of the plan. Um, most of the time, I don't know that God's going to heal somebody. There was, there have been rare times where I felt like God's going to heal this person. I remember one time years ago when my Sunday night study, a person came up and they, they were like, Mike, I, I just got diagnosed with um, colon uh, cancer. You know, they did the, the, the initial tests and it, was, it came back as cancer and they're going in later to deal with this mass and we prayed over him and I had this like strong sense now now it could just be me I could just be a human making mistakes because we're, we're fallible individuals but I had a real strong sense I felt was from the Lord that God was going to heal this man now I didn't actually change the way I prayed except in my heart I had faith 
about God healing this guy. But I still pray, Lord, you know, I pray that you bless and heal him and, and, and just prayed like I normally do. I didn't, because I wasn't so confident in my own perception, but I felt like it was the Lord, okay? And, and now some are like, see, I guess my kid is kind of charismatic a little bit. Um, so I prayed that way. He came back later and the cancer was gone and the doctors were befuddled. They, and it wasn't like a stage four, like massive. Can- it was just, it was gone and they were befuddled. They didn't understand why. I've other times I pray for people and I've felt like the Lord showed me he's not going to heal them. And so I, I, pr- I counsel them differently to prepare them for what's coming. Um, and other times where I feel like he is. And, and most of the time where I just don't know. I don't think we have to do prayer like it's magic words that we have to say in certain ways. I think that we can just pray according to the confidence that we believe that God is revealing to us. And if your track record is good, you can trust that you're reliable. But if you tell, and I've seen this where someone's like, you're going to be healed. I know God's going to heal you. And then they die. If that was you, if you said that to somebody, that doesn't mean God failed. And it doesn't mean some crazy, weird spiritual thing happened. It means you were wrong. That you had something that was from you that you thought was from God. And you have to learn that sometimes you're wrong and you can't trust your own perceptions as much as you do. You got to learn the difference. And that's the teaching that I find missing from a lot of these situations. So let's take that to the Mark passage that you brought up. Mark 16, verse 17. Um, There's more scripture I can bring in on this. I have actually taught on it, but I can't remember in what video I went through this methodically in scripture. I cannot remember... Oh, I think, you know what I think it was? It was a video I did called like uh, the video, the title was, or the thumbnail was something like How Correct is Kenneth Copeland? Mods, can you put that video in the ch- chat? And I'll try to put it in the in the um, description later on. But yeah, it was about um, the best name it and claim it verse analyzed in my Mark series. And I go through this in more detail. But here, Mark 16, 17, and uh, 18. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I think that um, this is the part of the verse right here I'm highlighting. That's the part of the verse I think is often misunderstood. So presuming this text, Mark 16 here belongs, I have a video on that. Um, Do these signs always and for all time follow all believers? Well, it doesn't say these signs will always follow all of those who believe. I think Jesus is, he's ascending and he's talking about some signs that are going to be with the church as a way of testifying to the truth of the gospel. Um, The fact that it doesn't always follow all of those who believe is enough for us to go, oh, sometimes God heals, sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes they're casting out demons. Sometimes they'll speak with tongues. Sometimes they'll may even take up a serpent. Um, these last two are just about God protecting them. But does God always protect them? No. I mean, he even tells James and John, you're going to go to the cross too. Peter, you're going to end up going to the cross too. So it's not like they'll never be hurt, but there will sometimes be these signs. Paul had that experience. And so it was a sign to those people. All right, number 10. Ah, oh, speed up. I'm going to go in super fast mode now. Anonymous question. Can it be said that the Beatitudes are eschatological? I've heard that the word blessed can be better translated blissful in them. Okay, those are two very different things, at least to my mind. Um, so the Beatitudes are in you know Matthew 5 where Jesus talks about blessed are those. That's what we call the Beatitudes. 
it's the attitude that you should have. You should you should be that attitude. Eh? Cheesy stuff. So Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourn, for they shall be are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, inheriting the earth is eschatological. It's about a final, eventual inheritance of the earth. The the kingdom is both now and later. But so I'm in the kingdom now, but the kingdom has not come to the earth. So I'm part of the kingdom, but the kingdom isn't here in the present sense. That's later. That's so there's there's a there's a now and later sense of verse three. Bless those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, there's some comfort that comes to me now, but there's some that comes to me later as well. Greater comfort when he wipes away every tear from our eye. So there's the ultimate comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's definitely eschatological. That's about a future inheritance of the earth. This is about the the resurrection and the second coming and the setting up of Christ's kingdom. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That could be now and later. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's definitely now and later. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's later. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. That's now and later. Now, now I'm thinking of candy. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this doesn't just say they will have theirs is the kingdom. Like, hey, you're being persecuted. You feel outed. You feel like you don't belong. But you're actually, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You do belong. There's like a, a comfort that's there. So are the Beatitudes eschatological? In a, in a broad sense, they are. But they're eschatological in many of the final results that they talk about. But they're very present and practical in how you apply them today. So it's not just a prediction. It's, it's hey, look to the future to help you with your current situation. Which is a very New Testament thing. Um, now, you've also heard the word blessed can be translated as blissful. Um, blessed uh, means like happy. I'm happy. It, it's not a special spiritual term. It, it is It is in many Christian circles because, you know, the only time you use the term blessed is when you're in church or when you're talking about God or something. Like, how are you doing? I'm blessed, man. But they would use the term in normal language. Like, how are you feeling? Blessed. Like, I'm good. I, I am happy. I am, I have joy. Uh, blissful. So here's the thing. Blissful implies something a little different. And here's why I like blessed. Um, blessed, can't you can translate it, oh, how happy. Um, or I guess you could even translate it blissful, maybe. But the problem is blissful is not the same as blessed. Blessed is something that's happened to me. I am blessed. I'm the receiver of it. Whereas blissful is a joy that's present within me. And so I think what he's doing is he's trying to impart joy or happiness or a sense of bliss to us whether you're feeling it emotionally or not may not be the main focus here it's being imparted do you get the difference between blessed passive happens to me versus blissful which is all about my my emotional state at least that's my understanding of it i would do a greek word study on it if i could do that within in 10 seconds to confirm some of that stuff but those are my off the cuff thoughts Kaylee Witten says, how do we discuss abortion in a way that doesn't push people away from the gospel? Despite being very careful to speak up with gentleness, I'm still getting accused of being hateful and blocked. Kaylee, it is not your fault. Jesus couldn't even do that. I mean, let me say it this way. 
because of his desire to have people freely come to the truth through the proclamation of the truth and Jesus's willingness to watch them walk away, Jesus wouldn't do that, right? Like he could obviously just force the will of mankind to all get saved, but he chose not to. He chose these specific ways of doing things. And so Jesus, as he has his earthly ministry, there's times where it almost seems like when he has a large crowd, that's when he brings a hard teaching and some of them leave. John 6 is like this amazing example of that. You know, a bunch of people depart from him because of his teaching. And he could have said it better. Like he could have said it in, I say better, uh, he said it perfectly. He said it the best way, but he could have said it in a way that would have better kept his following. And so I'm saying, Kaylee, like you're experiencing the same thing the New Testament authors experienced, the Jesus experienced, the same thing your brothers and sisters around the world as Christians experience. When you preach the truth about sin, people walk away. When you preach the hard things about the gospel, people turn away. There's no version of the gospel that is so nice that it will overcome that problem. And if there is, it may not actually be the gospel, right? Like it's so gentle and so kind that it doesn't really resemble any of the preaching of the New Testament. That the authors themselves, that the apostles themselves would hear that softest possible gospel. And they would maybe wonder if it was the gospel. Because Paul went around telling saying God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's in the book of Acts, right? Jesus went around saying repent. When uh, when he confronted people, he dealt with the sins that they were dealing with in that exact moment. So I, I say all this to say, Kaylee, uh, read read First Peter, right? When when you are despised because you're preaching righteousness and living godly, that is that is consider rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. And that's part of their process of having turned from Christ. But it's not the end of the story for them. They may still come around, but at least they'll know the truth. You've left them with this fact of the Christian gospel that that they've pushed away, but um, maybe they'll come back to it. So be winsome when you can, but never compromise truth for the sake of building a bridge. Number 12, followers of Jesus, follower of Jesus says, the Bible says to bear with brethren of weaker faith. That's in Romans, y'all. If instrumental music is a liberty, shouldn't we bear with those who believe acapella is the right way and not use instruments? Um, I take Romans 14 to be talking about individual inter, inter, interrelations and not to turn into the tyranny of the person who has the weak conscience. So if I have a... Let's say that my mom, who, who likes music, she doesn't care, but let's say my mom doesn't, she will only accept acapella music. And so I go over and I want to turn on music when the family's there and we're going to listen and it's got instruments. I would never do that with my mom. If, if she was that way, I'd be like, no, I'm not going to do that with her. I'm going to bring, you know, it, it's like uh, my, my uh, I have family that's gluten-free, you know, so I'm not going to bring gluten stuff to the family gathering. That's bearing with them at that family gathering. I'm going to try to bring at least an option for them. But it's a little different if they want to go into the church and declare to the church, I have a conviction that's not necessary and you all have to obey my conviction. So imagine a person going to the church and saying, you know, I think that it hurt, it hurts my conscience, you know, that we gather on Sunday instead of Saturday. I think we should gather on Saturday. So because of this one individual in the church, we have to change the entire church calendar. But what if there's another individual who says, I have a conscience that says we have to gather Sundays. So now what do we do? Do we, they fight to the death? <laughs> How do we handle this? 
um, yeah, no, I'm, we, we, we can't do this. We can't put them as like a tyrant over the whole church. So a person who says like, I don't like the acapella. I mean, if enough people say they don't like instruments, I'm inclined to not do it because of trying to help minister to the crowd because it becomes a crowd conscience thing. But one individual, no way, no way. Um, they need to work through that. So uh, Romans 14 is more about interpersonal relationships than it is about giant church gatherings and letting one person dictate how a whole church should go. We get this all the time. There's people who are like, Mike, I don't like the lights in the background. I think you're, or you, you, you have like your face on your logo, you're stumbling me or something like that. And it's like, look, you, the point at which you're exercising unhealthy control over the lives of others is the point at which it's not just bearing with the weaker conscience person like Romans 14 says. Number 13, Sabrina Myers. What are your thoughts on purchasing sermons and not acknowledging the original author? Basically plagiarizing another pastor. It's been a huge problem at our former church. Thank you for your ministry, sir. Okay, Sabrina, I, I'm afraid I might not be as gracious as I want as I should be on this topic because um, I've, I, I'm a pastor who has taught hundreds and hundreds of Bible studies and I've never done that. And when I found out that was even a thing, you could buy a sermon that someone else prepares and you teach it. I was like very bothered by that because when the Bible says that the, the leaders, the elders need to be able to teach, I don't think it means able to communicate somebody else's notes. I think it meant you understand the doctrines and truths of Christianity well enough to communicate them and teach them to others. Not just, I can read a script somebody else wrote so I would, I would think that buying sermons like that might mean you, you, you are not able to teach. Like, how do I even know if you're able to teach if you're just purchasing sermons online? Uh, not only that, but there's just something like that feels wrong about it, to be completely honest. Like, I'm literally spending money to purchase somebody else's prepared Bible study. Like, everything about this is so weird. I have, I have a real problem with it. Um, on the other hand, pastors use other people's content all the time. I'll listen to a study, I'll read a commentary, and I'll pull data from those commentaries and those studies. I try as a rule to study the passage on my own first before I read these commentaries so that I have done the work, right? This this protects me from just borrowing from others. Um, so there's an element of, yeah, borrowing and learning from one another that we do. But if it's wholesale, then you've cut yourself off from the analysis of Scripture you're no longer able to teach, or at least you're not exercising the teaching gift, really. You're not. You're exercising someone else's teaching gift, and you're just communicating what they said. Um, and you're way more prone to error because the Word of God, like, corrects us. And I, I mean, commentaries are wrong all the time. If I just buy a sermon and can just say whatever they say, I'm concerned that, that you know, maybe you're editing the sermon if you're doing this. Um, but I'll say this. Uh, pastors, if you're listening, you're a pastor who purchases online sermons and you, and it's become important to you and you feel like you're not even sure you could prepare a, and teach a good sermon without buying them online, I strongly encourage you, stop buying them, teach to the best of your ability, and if you lose your job, you shouldn't have it anyway. Go get another job. If you can't prepare a message to share with your own congregation, then you're kind of lying to them by going and sharing someone else's message and they deserve someone else. I'm afraid I'm not as gracious as I should be on this topic, <laughs> um, but partly because it hits home. Um, I've seen many who do this uh, uh, nowadays, and 
I think it's a major problem. It is a huge problem. I, I want to, if you think it's happening, you know, and you're a leader, you're in leadership in the church, you think your leader's doing that, ask them. Are you are you buying sermons online? Are, are you taking sermons from others and delivering them? And on the side, on the other side of the issue, when people take messages I've given uh, from they're on the podcast, you know, because they're more widely seen, and they reproduce them for others, um, part of me is excited because all my hard work is reaching somebody new. So I think that there's like a nice thing there. It's like, hey, if you're buying good sermons, or in, in my case, they're free, just go download my notes off my website. Just you click on the text of a video link, and more often than not, I've got not the video, the text of the video link, right? You click on that text and you can download my notes. And I don't care how much you hijack from me because I'm, it's multiplying my ministry. I don't, I don't even care if you give me credit. You guys can steal my stuff all day long and not give me credit um, to teach and all that. But if it's not just borrowing and learning from someone else, you may even be delivering good content, but you're doing so mixed in with an abandonment of your responsibility as a as someone who's supposed to be able to teach not just able to rehash other people's statements i'm interested in your guys feedback should, is there is there balance should i be more gracious on that seems like a big issue um number 14 this is josie garrido who says who are the spirits in prison jesus preached to in first peter three nineteen? Oh, that's so easy man First Peter three nineteen, um, uh, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in, who were in prison. This what happens in First Peter three nineteen is Jesus is doing something um, after his death, right? Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who are they? After his death, at some point after his death, um, Jesus preached to spirits in prison. Spirits, meaning they're not just physical bodies. This could refer to angelic beings, some sort of disembodied person or any kind of spiritual being. It could be any of the above. Uh, a person without a body could also be called a spirit, right? If they're, if they're dead. Uh, who formerly were disobedient. Verse 20 gives us more details. They were formerly disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, then he goes on and talks about other issues. But, uh, and then he says that Jesus has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The implication is that this preaching happened after his death before his ascension. That's the idea. Um, so who was disobedient in the days of Noah? Well, that's where it gets a little complicated. So when you get into um, Genesis uh, 6, 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for indeed, he is indeed flesh Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants. Nephilim is the word. Interesting. And it doesn't mean 60 feet, 60 foot tall giants. It's not a fantasy novel. Um, if you ever met a Samoan, you've met a giant. Uh, there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God's going to destroy mankind. So here's the question. Who is being disobedient in the days of Noah? And the answers are either, well, it's these sons of God. Who are they? Are they some sort of angelic being, right? The, somehow having daughters, or having uh, children with human females by maybe they possess a man and then they go into the woman and have a, a kid. And then the kids are somehow powerful and um, and maybe even problematic, depending on what what's what's meant by this phrase, men of renown and mighty men. Those are interesting phrases. Um, so is it the son of, or is it their kids? Is it the children born to them who are these Nephilim? Are they the ones that were disobedient? Uh, maybe. But the text also says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And so mankind is disobedient in the days of Noah. So there's a debate. Like, is it is it the sons of God? Is it the Nephilim? Whatever those are. Another discussion. Or is it the, um, uh, the, the is it mankind? And I've tended towards the view that it's talking something more about the, um, I think in the past I've tended towards the view that it's more leaning towards like the sons of God or the Nephilim. But currently my thought is this, and even this is a little different than what I've shared in my first Peter study, just because I grow and learn, that we may be trying to decide between three options that aren't mutually exclusive. The idea is there was a lot of rebellion going on in the days of Noah. Jesus, after his death, he preached, he showed himself to be the victor and to be the savior and to be who he was to those who had died in the, in the flood, those who were rebellious. He's, he's basically parading him, himself as victor over those who were in rebellion against him. And so it could be all of the above. It may be that it's all of the above. Um, and how are you to find Nephilim and sons of God, whether that's a godly line of Seth or angelic beings, it could just be that it's all of the above. All right. Julius Cooper says, is there ever a biblical case to pray for someone to die? Excuse me. Didn't Paul pray? for the destruction of some people's flesh, for the spirit to be saved in the day of judgment? Um, okay, two different questions. First, let's look at Paul. Um, he's talking about excommunication in this passage. First Corinthians 5? Yeah. All right. The passage itself talks about a man who is having... Well, I'll just read it to you. It's reported there's a, there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Uh, um, um, it seems as though this man was sleeping with his stepmother and they're not kicking him out of the church. This is such gr a, gr a grievous and terrible sin that he, if he won't repent, he should be removed from the church. So he says, hey, kick him out of the church. Um then he says this, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, this, this harkens back to Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered together, they can do this excommunication thing. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is very different than your question. Paul is not praying the man dies. They're actually delivering him to Satan. Now, I do know one teacher who told me that this meant they they. <laughs> that the early church publicly executed the man. I think that is a horrifically wrong statement on several theological levels, not only because it's scary, the idea that churches would think they could publicly execute people, because that's a scary thing, um, but also because theologically, delivering someone to Satan isn't killing them. 
Satan is not the controller of the dead. Satan has no power over death. Jesus does. He's the judge of the living and the dead. When, you know, everyone who dies, they'll bow before Christ and call him Lord. So delivering someone to Satan doesn't mean killing them. Satan is the controller of the world. Paul is simply using a euphemism, a different way of saying, leave him, kick him out of the church, deliver him to Satan, so to speak. He's out of the church. Remove him. He's no longer part of your fellowship. Why? Why are we doing this? Because then he can live in his carnal self, his sinful self, and he, he will live out those things, but hopefully he'll feel the pain of it. He'll feel the suffering of it. He'll feel the destruction that comes from the flesh. Why? So that he might actually be saved. He might turn and repent and come back. So Paul's talking about excommunicating someone so that they might get saved later. Nothing to do with physical destruction of flesh. Everything to do with the uh, those who sow to the flesh reap corruption. He's talking about the kind of suffering of sin. And hopefully he'll feel it because the church is no longer there giving him a thumbs up in his sin. Um, but is it okay to pray for someone to die? Um, there are psalms called imprecatory psalms where we call them imprecatory because they're they're calling down God's judgment on people. And um, in a sense, it's, it is okay uh, at times, not anytime you want. Now, some are going to clumsily, oh, so I can just pray for people to die all day long, whenever I want to. And we're like, okay, sure. Right. Well, I'm not answering questions for people who think that way anyways. So I'm not going to worry about it. But uh, there's certainly a time to pray for things like that. Lord, um, those people are coming in and they're wrongly a a killing and harassing and attacking. But the interesting thing about praying for someone to die, not because you're angry at them and bitter at them, but because it's justice, that's the key. It is justice. It is is a proper and right justice. When you're praying that, you're not taking the actions in your own hands. You're appealing to God, the judge of all. Lord, you are the judge of all. I pray that you would deal with them. And so that to me seems a healthy prayer. Um, But just praying... I just hope that person dies. That That's a little clumsy to say it that way because it doesn't incorporate any concept of justice, any dealing with bitterness in your own heart, any making sure that your eyes are on Jesus and that your heart is right before the Lord um, and that it's not personal vengeance. So the idea of imprecatory Psalms that people miss is that you're appealing to God to do ju- justice and judgment. You're not willing to take matters into your own hands in an ungodly way. That's an important element of imprecatory prayers or prayers where you deal with stuff like that. Um, so yeah, the, the passage where Paul talks about destruction of the flesh, not at all about that, but yes, you can pray for that. Um, let's say you, you pray for a well-known global tyrant to, uh, Lord, just take him out. I pray that you would just take him out. And I, I think that that would save so many lives and it would protect so many people and it would be so helpful. But you're, I don't think that that's a wrong prayer in, in the right context. Fred Jacobs says, I have an incurable sleep disorder that my doctor has authorized the use of marijuana for as it is one of the few things that helps. Should I pray for healing or keep taking this drug that I hate? Um, Fred, this is a medical question that goes beyond my knowledge. Um, So I I can only speak a few principles that I would at least, questions I would ask. Um, What's the nature of the medication you're taking? Does it have THC or is it just derived from marijuana? Is there a non, is there a version of it that doesn't get you high? Is it getting you high? Is it making you not sober-minded or is it in such a small dose that it's not a problem? Uh, these are all questions I would ask. Uh, marijuana is not sinful in the sense that the any use of the substance is automatically sinful. 
but sobriety is the rule for Christians. But even with that being the rule, like um, there are some conditions medically that let, let's let's set aside the, the marijuana issue for a second. I'm going to come back to it because people abuse that medically all the time. And my answer is going to absolutely be used by them to get what they want and do what they want and say that I approve when I don't. But um, they were going to do it anyway <laughs> with without me. So um, for those who whose hearts are like, I just want to yield to you, God, and I want to have careful, thoughtful understanding of these issues. Um, so sobriety is the rule for Christians. But if somebody's on their deathbed and the doctor comes and they go, hey, it medically, it really is. All we can do is just make them comfortable. Often what they mean by make them comfortable is give them medications that dull their senses so that they cannot perceive all the pain that they're in. And I approve of that. Um, there's a hint possibly at this in Proverbs where she talks, uh, it's she, because it's um, uh, a gourer's mom, I think it is, talking there, Proverbs 30, is it, or 29? And she talks about give, you know, don't, don't fall into strong drink. It's very dangerous, but, you know, give it to him who is perishing. And there may be a, a, a case there to support the idea that there's medicinally, there are sometimes the exceptions to the rule. Um, unfortunately, though, while I do think that's the case, medicinally, there's sometimes the exceptions to the rule about even what seems like sobriety. This doesn't mean you can just get drunk because you don't feel good or I, I'm because people get addicted to medications all the time. Doctors definitely over medicate all the time. I go to the doctor even nowadays and I'll start telling them my symptoms. And the first thing they do is write a prescription. And then I ask them, but do you have any preventative measures I can take? Are there healthy lifestyle choices I can make? And I kid you not, it's like the doctors never even thought about it. It's never even occurred to them that there might be other options other than the medication. From my perspective, from my experience with doctors, it's as though they've been trained to medicate everything. Whereas I really want to first move towards lifestyle choices or is there a, a, a less invasive thing? Is there a less strong medication? Is there a more natural thing? I want those questions to be answered first. And people, everybody I've known personally who smokes pot for medicinal purposes, smokes pot in particular, um, didn't need it. And they just, got a, they just got a license to do it because they wanted it. Everybody I know personally, that was the case. But that doesn't mean that it's the case for everybody. And medically speaking, I can't tell you how bad it is to take a pill form of this or whatever and whether you even need THC in it or not. I don't know. I'm not qualified. But hopefully some of those things give you some godly counsel, I hope and pray, man. Tough stuff. Jay Ray says, how do I differentiate God's voice from intrusive thoughts? Um, when in doubt, presume it's just your intrusive thought. That would be my rule for you. Because if you're having, you regularly have intrusive thoughts and you can't tell, here, here's a rule. I learned this about dreams when I was a kid. I, I used to do this thing where you'd like, you'd realize you were dreaming, right? What do they call it? Lucid dreaming? When I was like 10, you know, I, I would realize I was dreaming and then I would just go and start flying. <laughs> I always run and jump in the air and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. It was like always fly right now. And um, I had this rule though because I would be dreaming and I couldn't tell if I was dreaming or not. And one of the ways I decided to tell if I was dreaming or not was if I can't tell if I'm dreaming or not, it means I'm dreaming. And this was an interesting, interesting rule. I haven't had those kinds of dreams in, in my adult life. But um, but the the idea is sound. 
Because when I'm awake, I always know I'm awake. I never am like, am I dreaming right now? At least not for me. My thought is this. When God speaks to you, it should be more like being awake than dreaming. It should be like, God's speaking to me. It's very clear. I know it. Right? And, and, and if I'm unclear, God, you can speak clearer because, it, bear with me, Lord, forgive me, but I don't want to confuse your voice with my heart, your voice with my random thoughts, your voice with whatever other, other voices there are. So if I'm in doubt, I'm going to presume it's me unless I know for sure it's the Lord. I think that that's a safer way to do things and that is how I do things and I've been blessed to do so because it frees me from feeling that every random thought is from God. I had a random thought one time I was driving down the street and I was uh, at the time I was being influenced by those who were more trying to motivate me to have like God speaking to me all the time, all the time, like about what, what, what aisle of the store to walk down right now, go talk to that person, you know, go call this person right now, like that kind of thing, like these sort of moment by moment kind of revelations from God, which God doesn't generally do in my life. And I think in most Christians life doesn't happen. Uh, it's more of the exception than the rule. Um, but I was driving down the street and I had a thought that if I didn't change, that I had to change lanes. And if I didn't change lanes, I was going to get in a car accident. And I thought, is that the Lord? Because I'd sort of been getting trained to think that random thoughts might be from God. And so I changed lanes. I thought better safe than sorry, I changed lanes. That Now like a day or two later, I'm driving down the same piece of road on my way home and I have the exact same thought again. I need to change lanes, just random, or I'm gonna get in a car accident. And then I thought to myself, and this is what I always hopefully try to do is project forward this. If this is a habit in my life, it's, it's not going to be healthy if I'm taking random thoughts and thinking they're from God, if they're not. And so I thought, Lord, you know how to speak to me clearly. This doesn't seem clear. Um, I don't have any real biblical reason to think that my random thoughts are from the Lord. So I'm going to stay in this lane. And if I get in a car accident, I'll know that you were speaking to me. <laughs> and if I don't, then I am freed from thinking that a paranoid thought is God speaking to me and nothing happened. And I was like, wow, how close I was to starting to do a bunch of weird things, thinking that my random paranoid thoughts were God speaking to me. And I had no biblical reason to think so, but I was in an environment that really pushed the idea that your random thoughts might be the Lord. You never know. And I thought, well, until I know, I'm, I'm presuming it's not. Number 18, anonymous question says, is it possible to believe in Jesus yet never have a change? Oh, let me back up, back up, back up for just one second. I'm slightly sleep deprived at the moment, but I want to mention this. Biblically speaking, sometimes these things are in the back of my head and I'm not sharing them out loud. Biblically speaking, do we have any instances of people who have random thoughts that are definitely God speaking to them and they don't know? Well, that seems to be at least the exception to the rule. Like when God speaks to Peter, Peter knows it. When God speaks to, to Paul, Paul knows it. When God communicates to people, they're very aware of it. And in Romans 12, it tells us to do things according to our faith. Right? He prophesies do so according to his faith. Romans 12, read it. There's like a or sort of a qualification there that I don't want to overstep my confidence that this is in fact from the Lord. So if you're not confident, don't do it. I'm not talking about stirring up faith. I'm, res I'm responding to that faith that is present. Um, the only example I can think of is Joshua. When Joshua, <clears throat> uh, not Joshua, um, um, Joshua, Saul's son, 
what's his name? Joshua? Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna punch myself for not remembering this. Uh David's like best buddy. It wasn't Joshua, was it? Saul's son. Joshua. Somebody help me. I don't know. Anyway, I can't remember right now for some reason. I'm just totally brain melting on that. Okay. Um, he has a situation where he's like, hey, look, there's the enemy of Israel. We know God wants us to fight them. Let's go up and attack them and see what happens. You know, maybe the Lord will be with us. But what's interesting is, and this is the one occasion, he goes up and he does it and God blesses him. But the, the reason why I would not put this in the category of God randomly speaking and people not being sure about it is we never have evidence in scripture that God was actually speaking to him. This doesn't seem to be confirmation God was speaking. Rather, this is a statement of, hey, you think it's something good to do that you know that would honor the Lord, would seek first his kingdom. Go ahead and try it. You don't need a special revelation. Try it. See how it goes. Maybe God will bless it. I think it's more permission to step out and seek to do things for the kingdom without a clear revelation than it is about him going, was that the Lord or not the Lord? I don't know, we're projecting that into the passage. There's some, so there's some of the biblical stuff that I didn't mention. Um, anonymous question. Is it possible to believe in Jesus yet never have a change of life? My father cheated and lived with his mistress. He said he believed in Jesus yet never came back home to live with his family. Well, let me say two things. Um, one, I don't think it's possible to believe in Jesus for gener- you know, for many, many years, for say 20, 30 years and have no change of life. I don't think it's possible because when you put your trust in Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you measure? How much? Is that enough change of life? You know, that I don't know how to measure those things. And, and I don't know that we're supposed to. I, I think that with with little to no change of life, we 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 say to somebody, oh, I'm not I'm not confident you're really a Christian. Doesn't mean you're not. I just can't be confident because I don't see the evidence. Um, but but the other thing I'd add to this is is that it's really hard for us to evaluate our parents. Like we're 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 very un, we're very biased sources. We we are. I am too. Right with my with my dad with my mom, I've got so much um, bias in there. Plus his sin against leaving the family with a mistress, it wasn't just a sin in his life and you're evaluating. It was a sin against you. He abandoned you guys. He left you. He went and lived with this woman and he never repented of that. Apparently he never came back. So I, I think that there's a lot to be said there. It was Jonathan. There we go. I, I thought it was a J Saul and Jonathan, man. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why I got that wrong. Yeah. Interesting thing about names in the Bible. Um, Nathan is the guy that rebukes David. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm ADD now because I'm just tired. Nathan's the guy that rebukes David because of his adultery, right? He goes, you are the man. He calls him out, child dies. When they have another child later on, they name him Nathan. And I wonder if David did that because of his gratitude for the prophet Nathan and even confronting him in his sin. And I think that's an interesting thing that might be there. Um, so anyway, yeah, David and Jonathan were best buds. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just saying this, when you evaluate your, your dad based upon wounds that are still open in your own life, it just, it's just, it's not that you're wrong. It's hard just to be the guy evaluating that. So I, I would maybe just get on the fence on the issue and say, yeah, I don't know. I mean, how much of my dad do I really know? Sometimes we don't even really know our parents very well, to be honest. We know them as our parents, but we don't know them as people very well. Their friends know them a lot better than us sometimes because even, especially if we didn't grow up with them, didn't live with them. Um, we view them through like little kid eyes, even though they're 
you know, it, it just becomes hard for us to evaluate them. And so that's a challenge. Um, <clears throat> Forerunner for God says, if there's a Christian adult woman whose father has passed away and she does not have a husband, who is she to be accountable to? I mean, she doesn't need to be accountable to anybody in that sense. Like a Christian adult woman whose father's alive can just be on her own. There's no reason why she can't. Um, I don't see a biblical reason for that. There, the husband is, is, is ahead of his wife, right? Right. Father's ahead of the household, right? But if she's no longer part of the household because she's moved out, he's not her head in that sense. He's a counselor. He has a certain fluid kind of authority in her life, but not like a, not like a dad to a child anymore, but rather like a, like a patriarch in a family or even a matriarch would have a certain degree of authority in, in a child's life, but not like the commanding authority they had when she was under their roof. That's different. And so I don't see why she has to have that. Um, this is a teaching in some circles that a woman has to have a man that she is submitted to. And so some would answer this question that you've asked forerunner for God. And they'd say her pastor, like the woman finds a pastor. And so she goes to him. Now, I think that it, it's, it's totally fine for a woman who's say you're single. Um, you don't have uh, the, the father relationship somewhere. And so you find a godly man who's older than you, maybe it's a pastor and you, and you like look to them to be kind of like a father figure to you. That's a healthy thing. That's that, that it can be healthy. It can be bad. You can pick a bad guy for that, but it can be a very healthy and helpful thing in your life. But I don't think that means you're under him and his commanding authority in your life. Like you have to ask his permission to like get this job or to marry that person. I think that they're there to counsel you, not command you. So, so even if you do want that healthy relationship that's there, it's not a authority thing. Yeah. Single people who are not under, under their parents, uh, homes are not under their parents authority in that same way, men and women, but upon getting married, there's a different, there's a different role and relationship that's there. So I, I don't, I don't see the problem with a woman just not having a guy in that role in her life. Why is that a problem? <laughs> All right. If there is a relationship, if there is a husband and the husband doesn't have that role of, of, of headship to use the biblical term in the home. And I'll talk about this in a few weeks in my women in ministry series, but if the husband doesn't have that role of headship in the home, like Ephesians talks about and Colossians and first Peter and other places, um, then, uh, then there's a problem because there's a violation of an established order, but where there is no husband, there's no, nothing to violate. All right. Number 20 is the meaning, this is from uh, Leek, uh, Leek, uh, Leike, uh, is the meaning of turning the water into wine by Jesus, by comparing Jesus at the wedding from the water vessels just like in the tabernacle to Jesus who does not use water to wash his, to wash us, but his blood, wine. I'm sorry, that question did not make sense to my head. I'll read it again. Is the meaning of turning the water into wine by comparing Jesus at the wedding, parentheses, from water vessels just like in the tabernacle, to Jesus who does not use water to wash us, but his blood, wine. Okay, is there like an allegory? I think I understand it better now. Is there an allegorical meaning to the first miracle of Jesus in Cana of Galilee in the Gospel of John? In the Gospel of John, it's the first manifesting of the glory of Christ is what he says. Um, <clears throat> the, um, 
we're going a bit long today, but you most of you are, are cool with that. So John, let's go there. John chapter 2. We really should just read the passage. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, now their weddings would be like days long, so days long for a wedding, not just, not just an afternoon or an evening. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That phrase, my hour has not yet come, in John is Jesus' way of saying, I'm not publicly telling the world who I am fully just yet. Uh, that hour has come part is about actually his crucifixion. The moment he becomes super open about all this stuff is also the moment he gets crucified. Um, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she keeps things on the DL. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Okay, they have these giant, like, you know, they would hold quite a lot of liquid. And he says, fill them with water. And they filled them up to the brim, implying that they were empty. Some see an allegory there. And he said to them, now draw some, of the, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. So it wasn't just wine, it was good wine. This the, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. But it was secretly, that's the point. He did it secretly. So there's several different things going on here. Jesus does a, a, his first miracle that the disciples witness. He does it secretly. This is going to be a theme in his ministry. He's trying to reveal things to people, teach them things, but not do it in certain ways that will lead to the crucifixion prematurely. And... Um, is there symbolism? Okay, so we have Jewish water pots that are supposed to be used for cleansing. Note that they're empty, implying that they're not being used for cleansing, implying that they're not properly clean, that the Jews are not properly clean according to their traditions. Jesus has filled them with water, but he turns that water into wine, and it's the best wine. It's better than the first wine that came. Uh, Jesus later talks about how what he's bringing is like new wine and it needs to go into new wineskins. So this may be a picture of the whole sort of gospel message. The, and I agree here with you. Yeah, the law is like this thing that was there to purify the Jews, but it's sort of running out, so to speak. And he fills it with water. He fulfills the law, but in doing so, replaces it with something better, turns it into the best of wine. This people drink and they're not externally cleansed like with water, but they're internally impacted by the wine. None of the people at Cana got saved by drinking this wine. None of that. It's all symbolism to represent Christ who offers his blood, something better than what the law gave, that cleanses us internally, not just externally. This is the salvation that Jesus is bringing. So I do think that there's a parallel here that we should notice. And for those who might doubt this, read the rest of John and see how many times he does this. Jesus sees a well. Ask of me and I'll give you water that'll burst from within you, living water. You know, and he uses the idea of thirsting and wells. He does bread and he says, I am the bread of life. He talks about the simple temple ceremony where they had at the temple ceremony where they lit the, the, the fire and said, the light of the world. And Jesus goes, I'm the light of the world. He's continually showing that he's the fulfillment of all of the Jewish 
prophecies and pictures and the external cleanliness of the law becomes the internal purification of the gospel of Christ who fulfills the law. And he says, I'm the bread, I'm the light, right? His blood is the wine. So I think it's a beautiful symbolism. Thanks for letting me talk about it. <laughs> and um, as, as far as any announcements I have for you guys today, it's just to tell you Monday is the next uh, video for women in ministry. We're going to talk about where women apostles and I'll answer a question that I think I left unanswered last time and didn't mean to. Um, so we're women apostles. We'll do with a bunch of stuff. This will not be a two-hour video. Thank you, Lord, <laughs> for once. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're going to keep marching along and plow through this women in ministry thing. As soon as it's done, I'm going to start prepping for Hebrews verse by verse. Cannot wait to do that with you guys. And I'm excited that so many of you are excited about just verse by verse study through Hebrews. It's going to be amazing. Because Hebrews is amazing. So, yeah. Um, Sarah Zimmerman asked me to close out by playing my guitar. Anybody think I have a guitar pick over here somewhere? Ah, here's a little, here's a little, little ditty for you. Actually, I can't think of anything. Oh, I can think of stuff. But, um, I don't want copyright issues. <laughs> a little out of tune. So I do have like a, a little worship album you guys can check out. You can, if you go to BibleThinker.org, you can actually see, listen for free to several of the songs from it. That's fine, but um, That's a little guitar for you. <laughs>